So the Bible reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 6 through to verse 8. If you've got the church Bibles, it can be found on page 92, but the words will be up on the screen as well. So Moses and Aaron have received their instruction from God, uh, and they're now about to speak to Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are, are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of him, or because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the, ha the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Thank you, Matthew. I'd like to reiterate um, our delight at being able to be back. And uh, I want to thank the con you, the congregation, for um, bearing with me as I was AWOL for <laughs> a period of rest, which was necessary, restorative, and very helpful. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge the support of the leadership team and also thank particularly Mark and Alicia for shouldering things whilst I've been away. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, you write this book of Exodus so that we would know that you are the Lord. We'd really know. We'd know who you are. So please, may that happen. Please reveal yourself. And if what is revealed we already know, may we hold it with firmer conviction. And if it's new, please enlarge our vision of you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was announced in Ministry Matters at the end of the month, we are having Hilltop Praise, a night of praise to God. Um, and it will be invitational. You'll be inviting people to come and worship. Now, when you're thinking about who you might invite to that night, there'll be a list in your head of people whom you could invite, and perhaps there's a longer list of people whom you think, no, I won't invite. Why won't you invite them? Answer, because you know that probably they think the same as Pharaoh. At the start of chapter 5, you'll need a Bible, by the way, so if you, if you haven't got a Bible, stick up your hand and um, someone will try and get one to you. That's good. So you'll need a Bible. At the start of chapter 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go so that they can come to a hilltop praise of night of worship. Well, not just a night, but Mount Sinai, hilltop praise, right? To which Pharaoh answers, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know him. Who is the Lord that he should be worshipped? That's exactly what people today think. Who is the Lord that he should be worshipped? You know, it wasn't that long ago that most Adelaideans accepted that the God of the Bible deserved worship even if they didn't do it. Well, today, of course, many people judge God arrogant for even suggesting this. What's he got over other people's gods? Who is the Lord that he should be worshipped when there are other equally valid faiths? And more than that, um, not only is God sort of one, one amongst a pantheon of different gods, the God of the Bible is judged as evil. Christians need to defend him. It's no longer the case that people assume that the God of the Old Testament is always good, but 
you know, there's this thought that maybe he's a little schizophrenic. In the Old Testament, a God of wrath and judgment, changing when Jesus comes onto the scene to be a God of love. Now, if you've heard that, of course, the, the way to answer that is, well, you could, you could engage with the um, highly technical task of reading, and then when you read, you discover that the God of the Old Testament is a God of um, love and mercy and justice, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and justice. He doesn't change. Um, but nevertheless, this view has led many today to join Pharaoh and say, who is the Lord? that he should be worshipped. And then there is this pervading sense that somehow the God of the Bible must be evil because how can a God who is all-powerful and all-loving permit suffering to go unchecked? Now, maybe you've thought of that yourself. Well, guess what Moses thought of it too? Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble, literally evil, upon this people. Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble, literally evil, upon this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. He's saying, you're just like Pharaoh. You know, you've made things worse. You've brought suffering. You know, I did what you asked, but you haven't rescued your people. It just got worse. Oh, he's got a very good point. I mean, in this chapter... The Lord brings suffering. He sovereignly acts to harden Pharaoh's heart and he brings plagues upon Egypt. So, in other words, in the very chapter where God says, um, let my people go so that they can worship me, the very worthiness of the Lord to be worshipped could be questioned. So what shall we say? Well, guess what? In these chapters... Uh, God, who is worthy to be worshipped, God, the one and only true God, he, what he does is he opens our eyes to his majesty. He, he shows how absolutely worthy he is to be worshipped. And he does it because he reveals himself in a way that he hasn't ever done before. What do I mean? Last week, if we, you were here, you would have heard that God, for the first time, shared his name this week, he explains what his name means. This is new, okay? Um, Pharaoh might ask, who is the Lord? Moses might ask, why have you brought evil? We might ask, who is the Lord to be worshipped? Here is God's answer, chapter 6, verse 2. I am the Lord, literally Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is something new. Up to this point, God was known, first of all, as creator in the book of Genesis, then as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But as to his essential character, his name, God had not yet revealed himself, but now, of course, he has done. Now, of course, names in the ancient world meant something about a person. I don't know what your parents were thinking when they chose your particular name for you. Parents do give this some thought, but often it's just, oh, I liked, you know, someone, and you can, my baby can have their name in honour of that person. But names in the Old Testament had meaning. My name is Christopher David Jolliffe, the Christ-bearer, who is loved by God, who is jolly. 
It's cool, hey. <laughs> All right. You want to know what God is like? Listen to his name. Yahweh. Right. <laughs> Which means, I am who I will be. Which means, who God is, is revealed by his actions. And yes, they involved acts of judgment, but don't write off God. Listen to what those actions mean, because God gives them meaning. Say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Who God is, who Yahweh is, what his name means is revealed in his actions. He is a redeemer. A redeemer who hears the cries of his people. A redeemer who remembers his words of promise and keeps them. A redeemer who responds to his people with compassion. Now, when we hear that word compassion, we normally think that that means pity. Um, you pass someone on North Terrace who's homeless, you feel pity towards them and keep walking. That's not compassion. In the Bible, compassion is never, ever divorced from action. You can't divorce it. If you just saw someone and, and felt pity towards them, that's not compassion, that's pity. Compassion is when you feel something and then you do something. That's compassion. Who the Lord is, is a compassionate strong redeemer. He does something. Um, he does something. God says, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. And then, then you see, you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out, of, out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession that's who I am. I am Yahweh. By explaining his name, God allows us to understand his actions. He is not evil. He is the redeemer of his people who wants his children to know that he is a redeemer of compassion and strength. So much so that everything we see that happens in this chapter, God's giving Moses wonders to perform, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God's confrontation of Pharaoh, God's bringing in the plagues. God plans it all, why? So that his children would know that he is the Lord, their mighty and their powerful redeemer. This is who he is. Now, why? Why does he want us to know this? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. In his character, in his name, in his reputation, who God is is a compassionate, sovereign, strong redeemer. God wants his children to know it. Do you know it? Do you know it? What image of God towards us do you have? Uh, is it just one God amongst many in the pantheon of gods, equal with others? Is it kind of a Mr. Bean sort of God who just makes things worse? Is it a schizophrenic God who changes from being wrathful and evil to being loving? Or is it the 
the one who is the true God in all the world, who out of compassion judges evil so as to redeem his children. That's who God is. God wants his children, he wants us to know this. In fact, not just us, he wants his enemies to even know it. Chapter 7, verse 3, God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he's not going to listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring up my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So God is passionate, you see, not for only his children to know who he is, but his enemies to know that he is the Lord. And that is why God brings plague after plague after plague. Why does he do this? Because he wants to shift Egypt's focus of who has the power in the world. You see, they had thousands of gods. They had a god of the Nile, they had a god of the sun, god of fertility, god of animals, god of um, the water. Okay, each plague is God trouncing Egypt's gods and declaring them to be no gods at all. It's like a contest, a contest of strength. Who is the Lord to be worshipped? Is he just another god amongst equals? No, he is the one true god in all the earth. God uses the plagues to ram home to the Egyptians the truth that there is no other God but Yahweh, Israel's God. You can imagine them in the plagues. You know, they, uh, there's the God of the Nile River and then, you know, it's clear that Yahweh has power over that. Well, at least there's the God of the animals. No, 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 they get... No, and, and slowly, slowly, their worldview changes. So the Lord brings the nine plagues from blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail... Locust, darkness, before Pharaoh then eventually says, get out of my sight, and warns Moses never to appear before him again. Now, so we're covering the first nine plagues. The value of the first nine plagues is not for the Israelites. The Israelites are not the focus in these chapters. The first nine plagues address Pharaoh and his officials. They are the focus. So here in the first nine plagues is what Yahweh the Redeemer means to the unbeliever, the unbeliever who asks, who is the Lord that he should be worshipped? Well, it's an answer. Boy, is it an answer. It's such an answer. There is progression, in fact, in what Pharaoh understands. The plagues can be grouped in groups of three. In the first plague, the plague of blood, this plague was designed that Pharaoh would know that Yahweh is Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. It will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So Aaron's staff gets stretched out over the water. Now Yahweh said he would redeem with an outstretched arm. Aaron stretches out his arm, all the waters of Egypt turn into blood. In February of this year, Australia heard of the massive massive fish kill in the Menindi Lakes on the Darling River. Tens of thousands of dead fish pointing to a very sick water system. Well, by now, all the fish in the Nile have died. They're all floating on the top. 
stinking, decomposing in the African sun, and the river smells so bad that the water can't be drunk. Strangely, this is a plague that the magicians can somehow repeat. So Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. He doesn't listen, just as God said. He doesn't even take it to heart. Second plague. Seven days later, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, say, the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Me, not you. They're serving you already. Now, I need to be worshipped. If you refuse, I'll plague your country with frogs. They'll be in your beds. They'll be in your slippers. Can you imagine that? They'll be everywhere. Once again, Aaron stretches out his hand over Egypt's waters and up they come. Once again, the magicians somehow are able to repeat the plague. But notice that there is a change. There's a change in Pharaoh. Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away and I'll let your people go. Pharaoh can see that the Lord is more powerful than the magicians. Moses lets Pharaoh choose the time for the frogs to leave, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. And so, of course, when they're dying in heaps and the land is reeking again, what happens? Pharaoh hardens his heart, just as the Lord said. By the time you get to the third plague, the plague of gnats, the magicians can't repeat it. Here's the development, chapter 8, verse 19. The magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They realise it. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said. The first cycle of plagues has gone through, the first three, and they see the Egyptian magicians being trounced and Pharaoh's heart becoming hard. In the next cycle, the tension mounts. God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh again. This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you don't, I'll send swarms of flies on you development, but I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people are. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And God's word comes true. The land is ruined by flies. So now Pharaoh summons Moses and says, okay, go sacrifice to the Lord here in this land. In other words, I'll accept God's words, but only on my terms. Moses objects. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go and sacrifice to the Lord in the desert, just don't go too far. And also, by the way, Moses, pray for me. Moses says, okay, but don't you pull a swifty on me. He does. When the flies go, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he wouldn't let the people go. Plague number five, the plague on the livestock. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you don't, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague. And again, I'll make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Development. Pharaoh sends out his own men to investigate the distinction. Not one Israelite animal dies. And yet still, his heart is unyielding. He refuses to let people go. How thick can you be? Number six, next, take handfuls of soot, toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. This is the plague of festering boils, right? Now, at the end of plague three, the magicians are trounced. At the end of plague six, sorry, the magicians are festering. 
because they can't even appear before Pharaoh. They are covered in boils. Verse 12, um, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said to Moses. Now, by the time you get to the last cycle of three plagues, plagues seven, eight, and nine, what's emphasised now is the complete and unprecedented destruction brought upon Egypt by the plagues. They get worse and worse. And it accents how hard Pharaoh's heart is that he doesn't yield. Go and confront Pharaoh. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews say, says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send against you the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people. Why? Again, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the, off the, the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose. Why? That I might show show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So there's a development here. God's revealing more and more of his plan. He wants his children to know that he is the Lord. He wants Pharaoh in Egypt to know that he is the Lord. Through them, he wants the whole earth to know that he is the Lord. I once had a friend who, had, who took great exception to this. Why is God so concerned for his own glory? I mean, isn't he up himself? You know. I mean, if any human being was into self-promotion like that, of course, they'd be crucified, wouldn't they? Well, it's ironic that the one human being who was worthy to be worshipped and glorified was crucified. There's something wrong with us. But the point is that if any normal man or woman sought glory and worship, as if they were God or something, we'd laugh at them. <laughs> uh, they deserve to be taken down a peg or two. But here's the thing. God is not a normal man or woman. He is the creator of all men and women. He is the Lord. He is God. There is no one greater in the universe, no one more worthy of worship than he. And so it's right that he be unashamedly self-promoting because it's fitting the whole earth know who he is. We're not on the same level. Again, Moses stretches out his hand towards the sky. The Lord rains down hail upon Egypt. And we note that this was a w the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it be had become a nation. I lived through Australia's uh, worst natural disaster, most expensive natural disaster. Do you know which one it was? Sydney Hailstorm, 1999, when all the Audis, the BMWs of the eastern suburbs were just pulverised and the houses in Rose Bay and Vaucluse and all these places had tarps over them because the roofs were completely ripped off. God wiped out the eastern suburbs in an afternoon, just like that. I remember taking Bronwyn, our eldest, uh, to stand at the front door. We were living in Newtown. Bronwyn, come and look at this. There's hail, it's big. And then I saw our car just being turned from a smooth roof into, into something that resembled a golf ball, you know, with lots of bumps in it. But you could see them appearing. It was very entertaining. Um, except then I realized how much it cost me. It was very expensive. Anyway, uh, that was nothing to what happened here. 
Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree, except, of course, in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Development? Well, this time Pharaoh says, I have sinned. About time. He admits wrong. He said, the Lord is in the right, I am in the wrong. Of course, by the time the hail stops, he sins again. He and his officials harden their hearts. Plague number eight, locusts. Again, this is unprecedented in destruction. Now, if you've lived through a locust plague, you know they eat everything. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that's growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither you nor your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Pharaoh's officials by this time see sense. Pharaoh, let them go. Can't you see that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh says, okay. But who exactly will be going? Everyone, not on your life, only the men, only they can go. Moses stretches out his staff over Egypt. The locusts come, the ground is black with them. They eat everything. Nothing green remains in the land of Egypt. Well, this time, Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for forgiveness. Finally, he sees this time that the plague is deadly. And then the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Okay, number nine. What plague could possibly trump the hail and the locusts? Egypt is now totally ruined. So what plague can trump it? Well, the answer is a plague of darkness that is so dark that it can be felt because this is a plague that will get in to people's psyche. Do you remember how when Jesus was on the, on the cross, darkness spread across the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour? I mean, imagine if we went outside and then just the whole sky just rolled across with darkness and all light was extinguished and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. This is not normal. This is something heavenly, something supernatural. This is a judgment. Well, here the darkness stretches across Egypt for three days, not three hours. No one can leave their home. When I was 10, I went on a family holiday to Jnolan Caves in the Blue Mountains, and we went through the cave system. It was, I remember with the, mad, you know, the wonder of a 10-year-old eyes and, uh, uh, looking at this cave system, and I still remember the guide, the stories they told. They said that the man that explored the cave system, um, he, he just did it with rope and candles and that sort of stuff, but he went further than anyone's been because there was still much that's unexplored. And in his notes, he said there was, a, there was a cavern that was vast and huge. He, he, he said it was like the Sydney Harbour, probably not that big, but, you know, huge, huge, and no one knows where it is. Uh, he was a bit of a womaniser. When he died, his wife was so angry, he bur she burnt all his notes. Um, after I came back, um, a little while later, there was a story in the news of a boy about my age, who got lost in Janolan Caves. And it was on the front page of the paper for three days because there was a massive search undertaken and finally the searchers found this boy and he was standing on a narrow ledge and uh, what had happened was he'd wandered off with a box of matches. 
Oh, interesting. Of course, it's going to run out, right? His last match that he struck, he looked down and he was on this narrow ledge on sort of a cliff and, and there was this huge drop into darkness in front of him. So he just froze where he was for three days. He stood there in total darkness and terror. Okay. Here is a darkness that terrorised, a darkness you could feel. A darkness worse than that because these people aren't underground, okay? They're above ground and there's nothing more certain to us than the sun will come up every morning. What do you think on the morning that the sun doesn't come up except, I mean, what could you conclude except that the world must be somehow at an end? The judgment of God is falling. Pharaoh says, you can all go, but leave the animals. Moses objects and Pharaoh then loses it. He says, get out of my sight. Well, that's ironic. Can't see anything anyway. Get out of my sight. Make sure you don't appear before my face again, Moses says, just as you say. These first nine plagues tell us about God. They tell us about who God is. They tell us about who God is specifically in relation to Pharaoh and those who do not believe in him. Who is God? He's the God of Abraham's descendants, Israel's redeemer, the God of compassion who redeems with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's the Lord worthy of worship. Who is God? His name is Yahweh. He humiliates other would-be gods as nothings through plagues of judgment. He is Yahweh. He enables Pharaoh and all of Egypt to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel's God, is in fact the Lord of all. He is the one true living God. There is no other God but he. And that his hand is strong and mighty to judge those not on his side and redeem his people. So you'd better make sure you're on his side. Two points of application that come straight from the passage. The first one is make sure you tell these stories to the kids. Uh, don't skip the stories of judgment. Now, I say this because uh, it comes straight from this passage, but uh, just thinking about our own practice, we do like to skip stories of judgment. You know, you're reading the Bible to your kids or you've, you've got your Sunday school group or even your youth group, and there's this great temptation to skip over the harsh bits, the bits of judgment, okay? The bits which might cast God in a negative light or something like that. Uh, don't do it. Why? We cannot. We must not. Why not? Because God tells us to. Chapter 10. The Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh because I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I can perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Why? Verse 2, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. So God tells us not simply to retell the stories of love and salvation and good news, but also to tell those on the judgment side of God dealing harshly with the Egyptians. According to God, this is how our children will know that he is the Lord and how he will learn to fear them and not walk away from them. 
When I saw this in the book of Exodus, when my kids were little, I, around the dinner table, I, I read a, a plague each night. Did they have nightmares? No. But they were gripped. And they realised he's the Lord. He's the one true God. And you fear him. You see, if you have Christianity without stories of judgment, you can cut out, well, <laughs> most of the Bible, can't you really? Uh, you can cut out Genesis 3, you can cut out, well, Noah, stories of Noah, uh, much of the Old Testament, um, certainly the Exodus, and in the New Testament, you'd want to cut out Good Friday, wouldn't you? And yet what you're left with is sin that goes unpunished, judgment that needs no escape from, a God who doesn't redeem with an outstretched arm. That would be a mistake because, of course, it was precisely on Good Friday at the cross that God showed himself most clearly, for it was there that he stretched out his arms, right? One arm against, like against the Egyptians, against the enemies, against us. Sin, death, condemnation, and the other arm stretched out with a mighty arm to redeem us on the cross. It's there that God shows himself most clearly. If we don't tell our children these stories, they'll never know the Lord as their strong and compassionate redeemer. Second, do not harden your hearts against the Lord. Don't harden your heart. Let me tell you how it might be possible to do this. Do you remember how Pharaoh wanted to accept God's word to him, but only on his terms? You can go and sacrifice, but stay in Egypt. Okay, you can go out of Egypt, but don't go too far. You can go, but only the men can go. Well, all of you can go, but don't take the animals. You know, we can do the same. I'll worship you, God, but on my terms. I'll take the bits I like of you, but the bits that I find harsh or will make me uncomfortable, I'll leave behind. I'll accept your words, but not warnings of judgment. I'll accept the words of Jesus, but not your actions. I like the God of love, not the God of wrath. Can you see what we're doing? You're editing God. Now, what happens when you edit God? What are you saying about yourself? You're saying that you are in a better position to judge who God should be than who he is. I mean, you can't do that. I'll accept you, God, only on my terms. I'll be soft in my heart towards those parts of you I like. I'll harden myself against those parts I don't like. That's to misrepresent God completely. It's impossible to worship God by butchering him like that. Because we've seen it. Exodus has shown us you can only understand God as redeemer if you realize that the very act of redemption requires an act of judgment to bring you out. He can't be the redeemer of the Israelites from Egypt without judging the Egyptians. He can't be our redeemer without judging sin and death. Someone has to take the rap. And the remarkable thing is that God did it on the cross. And that's our help, isn't it? Because whilst, you know, you read the Bible and there are hard bits in it, you think, oh, but, but the cross helps you. If you've still got questions, you can hear then at least you can hear from the cross Yahweh sort of shouting out that, no, I, look, there are hard bits, but I don't have a dark side towards you. No, 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 I'm for you more than you can understand. 
And if you find that idea repulsive, you know, God reveals himself by his actions. The cross tells us who is the God whom we worship. He is the God of infinite compassion who stretched his arms out to redeem potentially the world by taking on himself our judgment. That's who he is. That's what his name means. And he calls us not to harden our hearts against him, but to worship him, to embrace him. Father in heaven, thank you that you reveal yourself so clearly through your actions. We pray for forgiveness if we have edited you. What presumption, what foolish stupidity. Help us to accept you as you reveal yourself, to fear you, to love you, to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.